turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 18. 2 Kings chapter 18. You remember last week we were in chapter 17. And what was the theme or what's the key word or phrase of 2 Kings chapter 17? Anybody remember? Yes, Christopher. Fear the Lord. Lord. He's got it. Now, you remember last week we found out that there were two different definitions for fearing the Lord, weren't there? There was one group of people who were fearing the Lord, and they made up who the Lord was, didn't they? And those were the Samaritan people. Even though they called their Lord Jehovah, they made him up. He wasn't really the Lord as the Lord had revealed himself. And so throughout chapter 17, we hear about people who fear the Lord, but yet then serve idols because they made up their own version of the Lord. That was the situation in the case of what was going on in the northern kingdom of Israel. And last week we learned just a wee little bit about some things going on in the southern kingdom. And today as we go into chapter 18 and into 2 Chronicles, we're going to learn more about it. We're going to learn the opposite. See, the problem in chapter 17 is that we had a group of people who were serving or fearing the Lord, the Jehovah, they made up. What we're going to find out in chapter 18 and in 2 Chronicles 29, 30, and 31 is that Hezekiah and the main population of Judah turn to the Lord, the true Lord, as revealed by himself. But before we dig in, let us pray and ask the Lord to meet with us and teach us. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much that you have revealed to us these events from history so that we may learn from them. Lord, I pray that as we contrast the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom today and their religions, quote-unquote, that we ourselves would take heed lest we be ones who invent our own version of Christianity, our own version of you that is in no resemblance to you. Let us rather seek you and seek you as you have revealed yourself in your inspired word, and may we know you more this morning. Teach us, I pray, In Jesus' name, amen. So we are in 2 Kings chapter 18. Where are we at in the history? Is this where we're at in the history? Yes or no? No. We've already learned all about Saul, David, and Solomon, haven't we? But before we keep going on, later on today, we're going to have references to this time of history. Hezekiah is the king we're going to learn about today. And Hezekiah does some things where he cites back to David, and he cites back to Moses. And in fact, we could go backwards on the timeline some more and go all the way back to the time of Moses as well. All of this history builds up to where we come today in the days of Hezekiah. So after Solomon, the kingdom divided, right? The northern kingdom Israel, the southern kingdom Judah. Are we here on the timeline? Yes or no? No. We're looking for what king again? Hezekiah. 
So let's go forward here in our timeline. Now, how about here? Yes, you're right. This is where we're at. Here is where we have come. And specifically, today we're going to learn about events here in the first year of Hezekiah. Now, notice how it goes up to the northern kingdom. Now, last week we learned about the northern kingdom being carried away captive and then the beginning of the Samaritans. That event all didn't just happen in one day. The climax of the campaign was in 722-721 B.C. Um, But the events leading up to it were spread out, especially the spiritual condition. You see, people didn't just all of a sudden one day invent a new version of Jehovah and write a new theological textbook. It was over a period of time of compromise, even in fact all the way back to Jeroboam the first, right after the kingdom divided, that this false religion began to develop and has been moving and moving, and it finally becomes a, a weird Jewish cult by the time of the Samaritan people. Um, and that whole situation is leading up to, in fact, the events we're going to learn about today take place in this year which you can see is a number of years before the final captivity of Israel. And that's important to us. And some of the sermons that we hear Hezekiah preaching today may cause us to think, if only the people had heeded these sermons. Now, let me tell you something else that's going on here. See, we look back on all of this history, don't we? And we have memorized that in 722 B.C., Israel's carried away captive to Assyria, right? We're trying to remember it, yes. We've learned that, right? And then we've learned that in 586 B.C., Judah is carried away captive by the Babylonians, right? And we just kind of look at this as, blip, the history of the past. Well, who's Babylon? I mean, rewind to Hezekiah's day. Who's Babylon? I mean, they know about Babylon. There's a city called Babylon, but it's not an empire. It's not the scary empire of the Babylonians, the great mighty Babylonians. There are nobody. In fact, some of the Babylonian people end up in Israel as captives. So when we look back at this time, we have to put ourselves in the place of Hezekiah. Hezekiah's scene was taking place and is not just taking place in the northern kingdom. All of the trouble that Assyria has been causing is not just up in the north. It's been causing trouble all the way down through Judah, all the way down to Egypt. The threat of Assyria destroying Samaria is a big deal. The threat of Assyria destroying Jerusalem is a big deal. Now, we look back on history, and we don't see it that way, because we know that Jerusalem survived. Now, we're going to learn about some of the details of that coming up, but at this point, we have no idea if Jerusalem is going to survive. And in fact, Ahaz, his majesty the king, is the worst, worst, worst king of all Judah. He's as bad and worse than the northern kings. 
So from a spiritual standpoint, Judah doesn't deserve to survive the Assyrians coming from the north. Judah doesn't deserve to survive. Jerusalem could and should be destroyed. They are just a spiritually apostate, and not just apostate, evil as the northern kingdom. I mean, at the time that Hezekiah became king, Ahaz had gone through the temple of Jehovah and had actually destroyed some of the most sacred vessels of the temple. The brazen altar had been taken apart and salvaged. I mean, think of it. I mean, what kinds of things do we scrap nowadays? You know, junk, right? Could you imagine going into the temple and scrapping the brazen altar? The brazen laver? The big bath of water? Could you imagine scrapping it for the metal? Oh, but there's one thing they didn't scrap. Instead, they decided to worship it, made out of bronze. So they scrapped the bronze altar. They scrapped the bronze labor. It's, we're not all sure of everything that they scrapped, but it seems like a lot of it they scrapped. Maybe even the golden altar of incense. But there's one thing they didn't scrap. Do you all remember this event? In the days of Moses? This was hundreds of years before when the children of Israel were in the wilderness. And you remember they started complaining, murmuring, grumbling? What were they grumbling about, William? Yeah, they were, they were grumbling. That's interesting. They were grumbling about what they had and what they didn't have. And God sent among them fiery serpents. You know what that means? Venomous, deadly serpents began to bite the people, and the people began to die. And Moses sought the Lord, the true Lord Jehovah, and said, what should I do? And the Lord said, make a serpent of bronze and put it upon a pole in the midst of the congregation, and whoever will look upon that serpent will be saved from the fiery serpents. And so that's exactly what Moses did. He fashioned a brazen serpent. He put it up on a pole. He lifted it up so that the people could see it. And whoever looked at that, though they had been bitten by a fiery serpent, they were healed. Now, that's a pretty special serpent, isn't it? Not because it's of anything valuable, but wow, that's a pretty significant symbol. It's a symbol of what? It's a symbol of God's healing, right? That's the reason why even to this day in medicine, we carry the idea of the serpent on a pole having to do with healing. It has to do with healing. Ultimately, it has to do with the healing of Jehovah, the miraculous healing of Jehovah. You know, there was nothing magical about that snake. That snake was just as quote-unquote magical and had just the same healing powers, quote-unquote, as if you were to walk into the hospital down here the road and find a similar one. Does that one have any healing power? Huh? Nope. No healing power at all. It's a symbol, though, of healing. And a greater symbol of the healing of Jehovah, a reminder of what the healing of Jehovah that took place way back 
in this time. But you know what they were doing in Ahaz's day? Coming back to Ahaz? You know what they were doing? They were burning incense to it. They were worshiping that bronze snake. Now, I know a lot of you are sitting back thinking, those crazy people. They were. But what silly things do we worship? Oftentimes, we worship ourselves, don't we? We invent to ourselves our own religions. So here is the state of the kingdom. They, they, they scrap the brazen altar of the true Jehovah Lord, and then they worship the bronze brazen serpent from the days of Moses. Not just that, but they have set up throughout Jerusalem and throughout Judah and throughout all of the land altars and idols in every high place and all the different streets and places of Jerusalem. Ahaz was even sacrificing his own children to his idols. I'm surprised Hezekiah survived. In fact, if we do the math and calculations here, Ahaz was only 11 or 12 years old when Hezekiah was born. That's kind of disturbing, isn't it? Especially when you consider Ahaz's morality. I don't think he was a very moral man. Boy, good thing Hezekiah survived, huh? It's kind of surprising, actually, he survived. Because Ahaz was one known for sacrificing his own children to idols. But now, Hezekiah becomes king. Look with me, 2 Kings 18. It came to pass in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Ella, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. Twenty and five years old was he when he began to reign, and he reigned twenty and nine years in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. We learned about his father. This is all we know about his mother. Can I speculate for a moment, though? I wonder what kind of woman Abby was. Now, we know what his dad was like, the worst of all the kings of Judah. What was his mom like? I don't know. The scriptures don't tell us. Who exactly was her father, Zechariah? We don't know. Perhaps Zechariah is, another, is one of the Levites, which we learn about later here in the time of Hezekiah. Perhaps a different Zechariah. We don't know. But I have a question. I'm going to tell you a little ahead of the story. Even though Ahaz is the worst kingdom Judah has ever seen or really will ever see, Hezekiah is the best king. Hezekiah is the godliest king of Judah recorded. And I wonder, I don't know, but I wonder if here this mention of his mother, Abby, if she had a key role 
in teaching him and bringing him up in the ways of the Lord. You know, mothers have that kind of role in lives. It's why motherhood is such an important and sacred role that needs to be preserved. In the New Testament, we find mothers and grandmothers teaching their son and grandson, Timothy, the things of God. Is this Abby just like those women? I don't know. I don't know. But I'm suspicious that either this lady or others had a profound role in the life of Hezekiah in teaching him the ways of God so that when he comes here now at 25 years old to be king, he not only has courage, but he has a moral courage. He has a godly courage. He has a biblical foundation. He is aware of and desirous to honor the law of God in this theocracy. How do I know? Well, look at verse 3. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David his father did. He goes on and says, He removed the high places and break the images and cut down the groves and break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. Oh, you see here now, that brazen serpent that Moses had made, he takes that down and he has it. Remember from the days of Moses, he brings it and it's brought down and they break it in pieces. Now, the, the sympathetic historian and archaeologist in me shudders to hear this. But yet at the same time, my spirit says he did the right thing. See, if this brazen serpent had been treated as the historical artifact that it was, and nothing more, or even just preserved as a symbol and a reminder to the people that Jehovah saves, which, by the way, is the name Jesus, Jehovah saves, then this would have been a great thing to keep. But that's not what it was. It had been turned into an evil relic. And thereby, in order to stop the perversion, it required that this incredible, incredible piece of history be destroyed. And Hezekiah did just that. For it tells us that he brake in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it. And he called it Nehushtan. It's the cursed thing. He, Hezekiah, trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. For he clave to the Lord and departed not from following him, but kept his commandments 
which the Lord commanded Moses. Well, that's the summary given in 2 Kings. Would you like to know more about it? Well, you'll have to take your Bibles and turn over to 2 Chronicles chapter 29. 2 Chronicles 29, 30, and 31 record what 2 Kings just now summarized in but, oh, three verses. Really, two verses. And it tells us here a summary again of of Hezekiah and what he had done. And it tells us in verse 3 of 2 Chronicles 29 that in the first year of his reign, in the first month, opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Remember, this is a big deal. His father Ahaz was the one who had scrapped the temple and sealed up the doors. You know what Ahaz, we find out here, had done to that temple? He turned it into the local landfill. It was the local dump. If you had any trash, just go dump it at the temple. So, so Hezekiah, the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. And he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them together in the east street. And he has a message for them. And Elijah's going to come be our Hezekiah this morning. You imagine with me here now that you have been in Jerusalem these many years. And um, you have seen what Ahaz has done to the temple. And you now here have a new king. I'm being gentle with my crown because it's breaking. And all this has been happening. And now you have a new king. He's pretty bold. He's gone to the temple. He's opened the doors. He's repaired them. And now hear what he has to say. You're going to go up there. Hear me, ye Levites, sanctify now yourselves, and sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers, and carry forth the filthiness out of the holy place. For our fathers have trespassed, and done that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord our God, and have forsaken him, and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord, and turned their backs. Also they have shut up the doors of the porch, and put out the lamps, and have not burned incense, nor offered burnt offerings in the holy place unto the God of Israel. Wherefore, the wrath of the Lord was upon Judah and Jerusalem, and he hath delivered them to trouble as astonishment, and to, to, as, uh, to, astonishment, and to hissy, hissing, as ye see with your eyes. For lo, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Now it is in mine heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel, that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. 
My sons, be not now negligent, for the Lord hath chosen you to stand before him and serve him, and that ye should minister unto him and burn incense. So you see here, Israel and Judah have been impacted by the Assyrians. Some of Judah has already been taken captive by the Assyrians. And Hezekiah is calling for action. Do you see that word you stumbled on? Negligent. Well, what's that mean? Well, he's calling out to the priests here that they not be negligent. Negligence is when you know you need to and ought to do something, and you don't do it. You see, there's two different kinds of disobedience. There's one kind of disobedience is when you're told not to do something, and you do it. That's a disobedience, right? That's called trespassing. Another kind of disobedience is when you've been told to do something, or you know you're supposed to do something, and you don't do it. That, too, is disobedience. And so Hezekiah is appealing to all of these priests and Levites that they know what to do, do it. Don't be negligent. Let us make a covenant with the Lord that His fierce wrath may turn away from us, he says. So here's the plan. These Levites, in verse 12, they rise. And it goes down through, and it lists the name of these men. Here, a very important key telling us this is a historical record. And these men gather themselves and others together in verse 15, and they sanctify themselves. And they came according to the commandment of the king by the words of the Lord to cleanse the house of the Lord. You remember that it had been totally defiled, not only with garbage, but with filthy, evil idolatry. The priest went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it and brought out all the uncleanness that they found in the temple of the Lord into the court of the house of the Lord. And the Levites took it to carry it abroad into the brook Kidron to bring it to the real trash pit. That's where they were going to bring it. Now they began on the first day of the first month to sanctify. On the eighth day of the month came they to the porch of the Lord. So they sanctified the house of the Lord in eight days. And the sixteenth day of the first month they made an end. It took them many days, eight, then another eight days, to clean out and to sanctify. Sanctify means to set it apart. You see, for all many years, it had not been set apart as sacred. It had not been made and treated as a special place. And so now it had been cleaned out. And now in the period of seven days, it was made to be sanctified, set apart for the worship of the Lord. Now, you all, if I say um, December 25th, what do you think of? What do you think of? Really? You guys don't know what's on December 25th? What's on December 25th? Chris, you all know that, don't you? Okay, so I got another question for you. What's on the 14th day of Nissan? I'm not talking about the car. I'm talking about the month. What's on the 14th day? He's joking. 
Well, let me tell you, in this day, this was an event that could have, should have been as special and significant to them as Christmas is to you. The 14th day of the first month is Passover. Well, they missed it. They went right through the Passover feast cleaning up the temple. And so they missed Passover. But you know what? They're going to still celebrate Passover because this has happened once before. If you actually go back in history, there was another time in which there needed to be some purification and some cleansing, a revival needing to take place in the people. And so they were not ready and able to celebrate the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. And so you know what they did? They celebrated on the 14th day of the second month. And Hezekiah, knowing this had happened in the past and was approved of God, he begins to make plans to do the same. And this is what we talked a little bit about last week. Remember, what did he do? Well, we have here all of these different details about him establishing and restarting the temple worship. And here we have seen all of the details come. The report comes to Hezekiah that it's, it's been taken care of. They've cleansed it. They've sanctified all of the vessels and the vessels of the vessels. And, and there begins a sacrifice. They begin to sacrifice in verse 21, seven bullocks and seven rams and seven lambs and seven he goats for sin offering for the kingdom and for the sanctuary and for Judah. And he commanded the priests and the sons of Aaron to offer them on the altar of the Lord. And so they did just that. And they used the blood to sprinkle it upon the altar. This was a way of sanctifying the altars, the sprinkling of the blood. Now we think of that as really gross, don't we? It was a symbol. It was significant. And you know it has a parallel to something very important for all of us. Here we see things being sanctified set apart, made holy, made special. Have you been sanctified? Have you been set apart and made special? If you've received the grace of God by faith, if you've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been sanctified. You have been set apart. You have been made holy. And though you didn't actually have the sprinkling of, an ant, of blood on you physically, you were sprinkled with blood. And not the blood of an animal, but the blood of Jesus Christ. This is the foreshadowing picture of that sanctifying that we experience as people, but being applied to these vessels in the temple. It's interesting in verse 24 too, we see again these sacrifices as a foreshadowing of Christ. For it says that the priests killed them here, these sacrifices for the sin offering. Well, look, look, begin at verse 23. And they brought forth the he goats for the sin offering before the king and the congregation, and they laid their hands upon them. That means when they laid their hands on these animals, it was an identification with that animal. And then the animal died. You know what that meant? By laying their hands on it, they were saying, this animal is about to experience what I deserve. And then that animal was killed. And then 
it says the priests killed them and they made reconciliation with their blood upon the altar to make an atonement for all Israel. Here is a reconciliation. Here is an atonement. Here you see it happening with the animals being sacrificed. But for us, we too receive reconciliation. Reconciliation means that we are enemies, but become friends. Enemies we are with God. But because of the sacrifice of Jesus, he made possible our reconciliation, our peace with God. Here, these animals were killed as a symbol of what they deserved, and their blood was made on the altar for their reconciliation and their atonement that was the covering of their sins. Our atonement is the blood of Jesus Christ. So here you see all of this. They're following the law. This is, a, this, is a, this, is, this is totally different than what's going on up in the northern kingdom. Up in the northern kingdom, they're worshiping golden calves and they're worshiping all kinds of different idols and they're working on setting up idols. But here in the southern kingdom, at least in the royal family, the king's family and the princes and the majority of the population, not all, there is a following of God's law. And you know what it resulted in? An incredible service of praise and celebration. For you remember that in the temple, when it was established in the days of Solomon, David had prepared for it instruments of music. Asaph, one of the, the psalmists, had written psalms for this praise and worship of the Lord to be done in the temple. Well, they pulled those things out. They dusted them up, they tuned them up, and here it says that they set the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals and with psalteries and with harps, according to the commandment of David and of God, and of Gad. Gad was the, uh, one of the psalmists as well, the king's seer, and Nathan the prophet, for so was the commandment of the Lord by his prophets. So now they're following again the commandment of the Lord with the music. And the Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets. Hezekiah commanded to offer the burnt offerings upon the altar. And when the burnt offerings began, the song of the Lord began also with the trumpets and with the instruments ordained by David, king of Israel. And all the congregation worshiped, and the singers sang, and the trumpeters sounded, and all this continued until the burnt offering was finished. When they had made an end of the offering, the king and all that were present with him bowed themselves and worshiped. The king commanded that praise continue to the Lord and that the people worship and that they continue in the songs of Asaph the seer. And they sang with praises and with gladness and they bowed their heads and worshiped. And then it continues on and they not only offered the sin offerings and the burnt offerings and now it is time they, they bring the thank offerings into the house of the Lord. And it goes through and gives all the details of all of these thank offerings. And you know what? It was abundant. They didn't even have enough priests to be able to offer the sacrifices. There were so many of them. And all of this took place. And it tells us in verse 36 that Hezekiah rejoiced in all the people that God had prepared the people for the thing was done suddenly. That I find fascinating. You see, 
just, what, 16 days ago, things were a disaster. The temple was desecrated. And here now, within just 16 days, the Lord, working through his people, has suddenly brought about revival. Sometimes we get this idea about revival and about getting right with God as being some long, drug-out process. Well, that's not true. If you're not right with God, today you could be right with God. Seek Him. Forsake your sin. Confess it. Here we see a group of people who have done just that. But you know what? It wasn't just for a few days or a few months. As we continue to keep reading, we find that this continued for many, many years, which comes to the Passover. We learned about this last week in which Hezekiah sent posts, letters, not just throughout Judah, but throughout all of Israel, inviting people, come, come, come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And who remembers? What was the general response of the people to these post-messagers? Anybody remember? What was their general response? Oh, you already forgot? Yeah. They laughed them to scorn. The general response to the invitation to come to Jerusalem to worship the Lord and to celebrate Passover feast as prescribed in the law of Moses. When the invitations came, they were laughed to scorn and mocked. And last week, we spent time talking about that. This week, I'd like to talk about some who didn't laugh them to scorn. You see, many did come down to Jerusalem. In fact, Many, 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 many came from Jerusalem. It actually specifies from what different tribes and districts people traveled from to Jerusalem to worship the Lord and to celebrate the Passover. A lot of times when people see the northern kingdom and the kingdom carried away captive, they, they've jumped to conclusions, and there's this term you'll hear of the ten lost tribes of Israel as if they've been permanently forever lost. It's not true. And one reason for that is because here we find members of those ten tribes coming south to Jerusalem. Many of them not only came just for the Passover celebrations, but they came and stayed. In fact, in the New Testament, we have evidence that there's not ten lost tribes. In fact, we're at Christmas time. Do you know a famous person in the Christmas story that proves to us that there's people from the supposed ten lost tribes? Does anybody know a famous person who was from one of those supposed ten lost tribes? My wife doesn't count. Who was it? Anna. You all remember Anna, right? If we were to go and look at the New Testament, when Mary and Joseph brought baby Jesus to the temple to offer the sacrifice for him as the one opening the womb, Simeon took him up in the arms and proclaimed the fulfillment of great prophecies and himself made prophecies regarding this little baby boy. But the, there was somebody else nearby that day. Oh, for some reason, the screen's cutting her off. The lady over there. I guess we'll come back. You see the lady there in the right, in the back? Her name's Anna. 
And it specifically tells us that she was from the tribe of Asher. Perhaps, don't know, perhaps her family years ago were some of the family who moved from the northern kingdom down to Jerusalem at this time. Perhaps even maybe it happened during Rehoboam and Jeroboam's reign, but it may have happened at this time as well. Or perhaps simply her family were one of those families who remained in the nation in that time and were preserved throughout these years coming. But here we find Anna, the prophetess from the tribe of Asher, perhaps coming to Jerusalem this time for this Passover celebration. And you know what it was? It was a great celebration. For it tells us in verse 13, there were assembled at Jerusalem much people to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So we have the Passover and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In the second month, a very great congregation. Last week was pretty depressing, wasn't it? Here's the balance. And now they take those altars and they carry them out and they throw them in the landfill in the Kidron Valley, which was a pit landfill. Then they killed the Passover on the 14th day of the second month, and the priests and the Levites were ashamed and sanctified themselves and brought in the burnt offerings into the house of the Lord. It was a wonderful day. They stood there in their place after their manner, according to the law of Moses, the man of God. The priests sprinkled the blood which they received at the hand of the Levites, for there were many in the congregation that were not sanctified. Therefore the Levites had the charge of the killing of the Passovers for every one that was not clean to sanctify them unto the Lord. We don't have time to go into the detail of this, but there was a specific sanctification process for priests. And here we have priests who sadly were not doing their job for many years and were, even in this time of sanctification, hadn't yet sanctified themselves either in preparation. And the detail is given here of all of this. And so it was a great celebration. And you know what happened at the end of the Feast of Unleavened Bread? It lasts seven days. They decided to have seven days more of feast. They had a seven more days of a celebration that took place. And it goes on and talks about all of the offerings and the sacrifices that were made. So here's what they've done in Jerusalem. And now look in chapter 31 and verse 1. Now when all this was finished, all Israel that were present went out to the cities of Judah. So just outside of Jerusalem, they go to the cities of Judah, around the Jerusalem. And they break the images in pieces and cut down the groves and throw down the high places and the altars of all Judah and Benjamin look at this, in Ephraim and also in Manasseh, those are tribes to the north, until they had utterly destroyed them all. And all the children of Israel returned every man to his possession and to their own cities. And Hezekiah then appoints the system. Now it gets structured. The tabernacle, now the temple, as 
a system, a structure of worship that had been established way back in the days of Moses with the Levites and the family of the Levites and the courses and how different people came to serve for a period of time, and then other peoples came to serve during a period of time, and it rotated between them. Hezekiah resets that system up. Those people also need to be cared for. They need provisions. And so now the people begin to bring their tithes, their first fruits to the temple, which was there for the support of the priests and for the support of the house of God. And not only do they bring their tithes in the, into the house of the Lord, they also bring gifts of free will, offerings that are of their own free will to give, and they are bringing these to the temple. And as time comes by, um, they begin to collect these things, produce as well as the livestock, and it comes to a point where the temple itself is overflowing with the abundance of it all, so much so that Hezekiah has to give instruction and directions for them to build chambers to store all of it. It just begins to overwhelm. What had been in his father's day where they had taken the temple and they had knocked it down, they had torn it apart, they had scrapped the treasures and the vessels of the temple. Now in this day they've been restored and instead of taking and bringing your trash to the temple, people are bringing their offerings to the temple and now the temple is a place of overwhelming abundance as God's people are faithfully worshiping and serving him. And it's just, <clears throat> you can read all of chapter 31, records all of the details of all that's going on. So the temple has been rededicated. The worship has been restarted in Jerusalem. And there is a great congregation of people seeking the Lord. Do you remember one of the reasons why Hezekiah asked the people to join him in this? It was because he knew that one of the judgments given in the law of God is that foreign kings would come into their land if they continued to disobey God and his law and carry them away captive. And Hezekiah acknowledged that this threat was real. And in fact, he inferred, that means he kind of hinted at it, that they deserved it. And they did. But Hezekiah begins all of these reforms and this revival takes place in Judah. And I'm going to tell you ahead of the story. An Assyrian king comes to Jerusalem. And there is no reason Jerusalem should have survived that siege. And the only reason they survived that siege is because God intervened. We're going to learn about that later. But the reason God intervened has very much to do with the fact that the people here now, in the days leading up to this, have sought the Lord, returned to Him. And therefore, the judgment warned is removed. Hezekiah was the leader in bringing about this revival, which is an encouragement to me as a leader and to all of you to be leaders in what is right according to God's word. See what's going on here with Hezekiah and all of this detail. And see, 
We sometimes have trouble with 2 Chronicles and 1 Chronicles because we have all this detail and these sacrifices and the blood being sprinkled, and it makes us queasy, it makes us uncomfortable, and sometimes we skip over it. But what we're actually seeing here is actually a demonstration of the children of Israel in that time of history obeying what God had commanded their nation, obeying the law of Moses as the law had prescribed. And you know what? We're no longer under the law of Moses as Christians. We're not under the law. We're under grace. But at the same time, what do we believe and what do we do? Is it according to some religion we've made up in our own mind? Like the Samaritans did? Like Jeroboam did? Like Ahaz did? Or do we seek to know God, the real God, His revealed Word, where He's revealed Himself, He has revealed the way of salvation, and He has revealed how we ought to live. Is this our guide? Is this our guide? These things were written for our learning. Are we going to learn from them? Gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the godly example of Hezekiah. May we learn from him. But most of all, may we trust you. May we obey you, serve you, as you have revealed yourself. And may we not just do it in our own strength, for that would be empty and vain and nothing. But may we do it in the strength and power of your spirit. Fill us and use us. We commit ourselves to you now in Christ's name. Amen.